we remember who started that? There was a first. Was it? Was it? I think it was Roger, wasn't it? Yeah. Huh. Trend center. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Hi. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew four. Uh, I forgot to announce on Sunday that there's no class on Thursday, but I'm thinking everybody kind of assumed that. Back in the day at Grace Bible Church, there was evening classes on Thanksgiving. Yeah. You could tell the pastor was, I think he was a bit uh, put out by his own rule. (laughs) I think I'm pretty sure he was. And like, yeah, I know. You know, just cancel it, but. He just he, he he didn't. And then there was the first time the Patriots were in the Super Bowl, Super Bowl Sunday. And at the time, there were Sunday night classes. There was a Sunday morning class and a Sunday night class. And I remember Pastor Bob saying, "Well, I'm going to be here." So and he kind of threw out, "Just cancel class." But you know, he 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 felt that he shouldn't cancel a doctrine class for a football game. But we're all in the audience going, "Cancel class," you know. He didn't. I didn't go. And the Patriots lost. So there you have it. Uh, All right. Matthew 4. Let's begin with prayer. Let's thank God for our time together to enjoy his word and to learn more and study more uh, as we um, reach ahead to a fuller understanding of God's plan for our lives. And so with humility and reverence, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for you, for your righteousness, your holiness that you have not exempted us from, but you have sent your Son to die on a cross so that we could enter into it by faith in him. We are grateful for the whole program of history that you have revealed to us. We don't know all details, but we do know what is coming, and what is coming is Jesus Christ again. We know, Father, that through him you have um, gained for us victory over death, victory over sin, over judgment, that we can um, relax and enjoy you, but while we also fear the things that take us away from you. We are grateful, Father, that your word constantly reminds us of the things that we have to watch out for. There's some very real dangers out there and also within us, and also what to enjoy that you have blessed us with. And so, Father, we ask that through your Spirit, each of us would be greatly enlightened in the area that we each need it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, Lord's Prayer is where we're up to next in our study of prayer and um, the, it's important before we hop into it is to understand some of the context of where it is. It's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Um, at the, the, the Lord's Prayer is uh, written in Matthew and in Luke. Uh, but Matthew's version of it is longer, a bit longer, not by much. Uh, <clears throat> it's obviously quite parallel. It's not that Luke has something different. 
But um, Matthew's is more uh, detailed, but in, which makes sense because Matthew's depiction of the Sermon on the Mount where this prayer is given is the longest discourse on the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospels. In fact, this, discount, this discourse by Matthew is the longest discourse of all of them in all the Gospels. This is where, so if you have a red letter Bible, this is where the red letters go on the longest in, in, without an interruption. So the Lord's Prayer is what we want to look at as some uh, initial thoughts from the context of Matthew. Uh, I was led to do this as, as I was studying it for myself, um, in which I've already taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and I went back to those notes, which were they're quite extensive, which I was joyful to find them. I was like, wow, I don't have to do anything. I could just reteach these notes, which uh, I can't do that. I have never done that. But um, in, in, in learning it again for me, what stuck out this time was the context of the sermon. Uh, and, and that's what's so great about the Word of God. It, it's alive and powerful and you may have studied a passage well, and after time, you return to it, and because of all the other things that you've learned and prayed and, and, and done in your life, you're, you've matured some. You've learned more about God. You have a greater understanding, and so you return to the same passage. And it may you have different questions, things that you haven't thought of before. Uh, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is uh, the the way of the disciple in the kingdom of heaven. And this is an incredible teaching. Uh, at the very end of it, the people are, are amazed. Uh, they're, it says that they're amazed at the authority with which he taught it. And that would make sense because he says some incredible things here. And he's not scared to say them. Any of us, if we were going to teach a crowd of people to do these things, we'd have been a little hesitant. Uh, first off, are they going to accept it? It's one of the things we look for in the faces of the crowd. All three of them. I can bear. I can't see Gail's face because, you know, yeah, there she is. I just see kind of the top of her head behind the screen. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, in in our theology class, the. The, uh, I call them the kids. They're in their 20s, which makes them kids to, to us. But um, you know, they're all presenting uh, passages that they've studied, and that's what class has been for the last couple of weeks. And uh, you know, some of them are more nervous than others, and you know, some of them do seem to do a better job than others. But uh, and all of them want to do a really good job at it. But they're in front of their peers, and uh, that's tough. It's tougher in front of your peers than it is in front of strangers. And uh, some of them handle it better than others. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, if this were, when Jesus teaches this sermon, it's the first time that anything like this has ever been heard. And that's not because it's, you know, it's brand new, because it's not. It's not actually brand new. It's just that Jesus is going to be the first to truly show what the commands of God were always meant to be. And that was because in the Old Testament they, they, had, they had rituals. They, had, they, they didn't have the full uh, revelation of God. Most importantly, the Son of God hadn't come yet because he's the fullness of the Father. So that they hadn't seen. So it, it kind of gets back to where Moses says, can I see your face to God? 
you know, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my face. And, uh, and when Christ comes, you do see his face. That's the face of God on that man. Uh, and so what we, what we get here is something incredible. And he speaks it with authority. He doesn't hold back at all. Matthew gives, again, as I said, the fullest record. It includes the Lord's Prayer. It defines Jesus' position with regard to the law. And, and that's the, the foundation of it. The foundation of the whole sermon. The rest of the sermon is built upon the fact that Christ said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And as all the, the ways that he is going to show us in that sermon are going to be based upon that statement. This is what fulfilling the law means. This is what it is. <clears throat> so by uh, understanding the context of this section of Matthew, we're be- better able to understand the prayer. And in fact, what this prayer is, which is really the outline of all prayers. And for us in this age, uh, the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, in Christ, indwelt by God, the temple of God, having all the full revelation of Scripture being the new humanity, new creatures in Christ, our prayer lives are of extreme importance. And in the context where this prayer is given, we can understand why that is. We've got one heck of a life to live. And, you know, I was thinking about this today as I was struggling with uh, myself and my sin nature that... You know, I, I sometimes I get so frustrated with myself that I, I kind of shake my fist at God. I don't do it visibly. Uh, was, yeah, I don't think I do. <laughs> but in my heart, I do, and I'll take it away. I, I, I want him to, why can't you have all power take it away? And I, I know this isn't a right prayer, but I just say it out of frustration anyway. It feels good. Let's say it. And he reminds me, one of the things he reminded me of immediately was at the end of the, the book of Joshua, where Joshua says to the Israelites, choose the God you're going to serve. He says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You choose. Choose. And, you know, that's what we have to do. We have to choose. And we have choices before us. Um, We get a heck of a lot of help with this, but the help doesn't mean that the choices are made for us. In other words, if God took away the thing that I wanted him to take it away, then he's made the choice for me. Because if the other thing's not there, then I've only got one choice, and it's him. So in that way, he's making the choice for me by removing my bad options. And he doesn't do that. At times I wish he did. But that's not what this life is about. Hence, prayer, study, prayer, study. And forgiveness by God, but we're all in this together. Right? We, we sometimes think in our, in our struggle with our flesh and our sin that this is me alone. And yes, when it comes to you making your decision, it's between you and God. No one can make it for you. But we're to help one another. Right? Help for one another is so important that God gave the, the church the gift of encouragement. He gave it as a special gift. There's those among us who have that. And it's, that's how important it is. But we're all told to comfort one another, which is, I think, to me, another word for encouragement. Second Corinthians chapter 1. 
says we are to comfort one another with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. And so we have to help one another in this journey and not put each other down. Not behind their backs, certainly not to their face. (laughs) You say, well, at least I said it to your face, you know. It should be encouragement. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, Paul wrote in Ephesians. But we all have that little, and I love that analogous depiction of our own little pet, beautifully clean area rug that we don't want anybody to walk on. And God sends people to walk on it. So that we'll learn. Does the love of God have limits? And it doesn't. Hence, in prayer, as we're commanded to, we're to pray for one another on a continual basis. Not judge one another, not put each other down, not gossip about each other, not slander or malign. No one walks in another person's shoes. You don't know what it's like to be them. And hence we are, that's what this sermon is. Right? What does he say to do to our enemies? Love them, pray for them, do good to them. To our enemies. Never mind those who are in the royal family who we are to love. That's, this, this is on that height. So, you say, is that new? Loving your enemies is not new. It was new to the Jews because they had decided that love your neighbor should have had an antithesis. And they did this a few hundred years before Christ. It was part of their oral law because it wasn't in the Mosaic law. Is to hate your enemies. They said, well, if we're going to love our neighbors, dot, 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 we need something else, don't we? So we hate our enemies. And that apparently to them completes the command. Right? In other words, God left half of it out. No, he didn't. Love your enemies. The, the, uh, sorry, not love your enemies. Yes, love your enemies. But the, the command, love your neighbor, it did was complete. As you love yourself. Right? And Jesus was the one who brought that out when he taught the, the parable of the Samaritan who helped the, the man who was robbed and left for dead on the street. And Jesus said, now, you know, this one helped him. Two others did not help him. Who was his neighbor? And then he said, you and go, you go and do the same. In other words, as yourself, if that enemy were you, what would you do to them? If that person who's getting under your skin was, in fact, you, what would you say to them? How would you help them? Or would you beat them down? So, it, uh, it, this sermon, and that's why prayer is so important for us, because this road of life is narrow and it's odd. It's not anything the world's ever seen. It never, it was never heard of before. And look, if you were a humble student of the Word of God in the Old Testament, a lover of God, say like David, <clears throat> right? David does things that God didn't command him to do, like write songs. That's not commanded of people to do. But out of the love of his heart for the Lord, he wrote 70-some-odd psalms, maybe more. We can't tell all the ones that he wrote. But uh, <clears throat> yet still, if the Lord showed up to David, the Lord Jesus Christ came to David and started teaching like this, Sermon on the Mount, and started to say the things that he said, David would have been like, that sounds odd to me. 
Because what the Old Testament saints had was a shadow of the things to come. So it's like Paul said, I see dimly in a mirror. You know, they saw the Messiah dimly. But they saw him. But even the disciples who believed in him, did they really get him? Not until after his resurrection. When he died, they were all shocked. And those were students of his. For three years they learned from him. What do you think he taught them? Not like physics. But in terms of, there's a great scene in the, um, the Chosen where one of the disciples is asking why, you know, he heals the guy at the pool of Bethesda and the pool of Bethesda is supposed to uh, churn, the waters churn every once in a while. And the, the thought is that pools, we know, actually know where it is. It's been found archaeologically. But uh, it is probably something about a thermal whatever in the earth that caused the water to maybe heat up a little and move. And one of the disciples asked Jesus why that happened. Is it, was it because of angels or did God do it? Which was the running, uh, the belief at the time. And Jesus said, no, someone's going to figure out why that happens. And then he's going to tell everybody. You know, which meaning some, somebody's going to find out the geological reason why there are hot springs. And everybody's going to know. He said, but what's important, and, and he points out there, what's important is not science or philosophy. Those things are nice. They can be important to us to, to live better, I guess. But what is of extreme importance is this life. And this is a spiritual, narrow road, which can narrowness means it can be easily gotten off of. And so we have to constantly, daily, recalibrate. Uh, and I, I get, to me, I think, well, you know, then that's, it makes the Christian life sound so burdensome. Doesn't it? I mean, to be honest, it makes the Christian life sound like, geez, I got to be at this every day, be quote unquote good every day, filled with the Spirit every day. And the answer is yeah. But like anything that's worth having, there's some work at the front until we get skillful. And then I think, and I have to say I think because I don't think I know yet, is that once you get skillful, it becomes fun. It's the way, on the way, right? The climbing over this, falling into that hole, picking yourself up and dusting yourself off, going through all the disappointments and struggles and fears, but pressing on with it. And then I think we find it. And I think it's true that all, I, I know it's true that all who seek will find. That's a promise. And so, when we see, so the context of this, which is this great life that I've just been talking about, is this prayer. It's just plopped right in there. Right around the middle, actually. And this communication with our Father about His greatness and praising Him and about ourselves, about His kingdom and His will, which Jesus is here talking about the kingdom, the way of the kingdom, God's will that we have to submit to, and God's provision for us, our confession of our sins, and our uh, 
request that God not lead us into the temptations of the devil. It's specific there that he meant the temptations of the devil. Um, And so when we understand the prayer in light of this life, we would not find ourselves praying for selfish things. In light of where it is here in this sermon, anything selfish is so far from this sermon, it's ridiculous. It's not, it is not even anything close to that. There's nothing here about my wants and desires and everything about the way of life that is to God's desire. And so we would find ourselves, in light of this, it would help us to make our requests and our prayers proper. Um, according to God's will. As James wrote in James 4, 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend it on your own pleasures. When you read this sermon, my pleasures are the last thing you think about. And I say, well, shoot. I mean, a great life? Really? What about me? And, and the thing that we have, to, we have to get over this is that what we think is going to fulfill us and give us happiness is not, is not true. It's just not. How could we know as fallen creatures who don't have all the facts? You know, God says, very hairs of your head are numbered. I know everything about you. I know everything about the world that you're in. And I am the creator of life itself. I know what joy is. And hence, you know, it's the faith to follow it. So, and, and, and so we're going to do this again. There's, a lot of this is repetition from Sunday, which is, I think for this, it needs to be repeated. Because it needs to sink, this needs to sink in because this, you know, the law is fulfilled, so I'm not under the law, but I am under the law? No, you're not under the law. So I don't keep the commandments of the law? Oh, no, 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 you keep the commandments of the law. But wait a minute, I'm not under the law. That's correct. So we got to, instead of cutting that knot, was that the Gordian knot? I almost said the Gideon knot. It's not a Gideon. That's another dude in the Bible. I think it's a Gordian knot, the impossible knot. That somebody was it Jason or somebody who cut it with his sword? Yeah, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not up to date on my mythology. So uh, Matthew 4:17. Matthew calls attention to this is uh, where the Lord's ministry first begins. So he's you know we have his birth, his genealogy, his birth, the Magi, and so on, and and his baptism as an adult. It fast forward in like two lines from age. Two to age 30, and then in, uh, he gets baptized. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, uh, which he passes with flying colors, and then he heads to Galilee and starts his ministry. And so what we want to remember, and I said this before, but I think it's important uh, to remember that the Gospels are not historical books. They contain the history of the life of Jesus, but they're not written as a history. They're not written to say Jesus did this and this and this on this particular day. Uh, one of the things that shows us that is that uh, on, Luke is somewhat chronological, meaning he gets things in order. 
because Luke is actually a trained historian and he's writing more as a historian than the others. But still, even Luke's book is literature. Right? It's written for impact and the sequence of events are not in order, especially in the other Gospels. And John's Gospel is completely different than the first three and contains stuff that the first three don't have. Uh, and so the Gospels are literary works. So when we see here, uh, the first thing that Jesus says, or he doesn't, it's not really the first thing he says, but in Matthew 4.17, he says, uh, uh, Matthew writes, from that time Jesus began to preach and say. Now, is this all he preached and said? No. I mean, do you think he just said this over and over and over again while he walked around? No. But like, Matthew is pointing to this first to impact us, meaning that this is of primal importance in the ministry of Christ. First thing, repent. All right, so you, when I see the word repent, my, my, I've got a bad attitude towards this word because people have hit me over the head with it. Um, and that's why I talked about this on Sunday too, is pre-understanding. We have to be careful of our biases. I just don't like the word repent, and I still don't. And yet it's all over the Bible, so I must not have that position, <laughs> right? I, I, I have to look at it kindly, uh, not kindly, but um, actually reverently. Repent means it's simple word, and its, it's impact comes from its context. So, for instance, uh, when God was going to destroy um, Israel, uh, well, how about a, a, and when God was going to destroy everybody on the earth? Uh, at the flood. And, uh, you know, he decided, it says there that he repented that he had made man in, in, uh, in Genesis 6. He repented that he made man. He said, I'm like, I'm sorry I made man. We, we have to scratch our head at that and say, you're omniscient. What did you think was going to happen? <laughs> of course, you saw it before it happened, as it happened. And, you know, so repent gets its impact from its context. And here, repent just means to turn around. That's all it means. There's another use of repent in the Old Testament where the, God said, I was going to send the Israelites one way and I decided I'd change my mind. That I'm going to send them another way. I said, well, God, what do you mean you changed your mind? And, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 it speaks wonderfully of the fact that God is revealing to us that Israel would not have survived one way, but they would have survived going the other way. And so God said, I changed my mind. In other words, I wasn't out to kill them. I was out to deliver them. And that's a wonderful way of showing it. Uh, here, repent is what? For the kingdom of God is at hand. So what does that mean? Turn around or stop following the wrong kingdom and follow the only kingdom. Uh, when I was writing this, I said, well, follow the right kingdom. I said, wait. Only kingdom. Stop following the wrong kingdom and follow the only kingdom. And there's the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, it really is. It really could summarize a great deal of it. There's a wrong kingdom. The kingdom of the earth. The kingdom of men. Mankind. The kingdom of the flesh. It's typified in the scripture as Babylon. 
And we see in Revelation 17 and 18, right before the marriage feast of the Lamb, right before the hallelujahs start in heaven, is that Babylon the Great is destroyed. The kingdom of the earth is ruined. In Israel, and it's the same message that John the Baptist was giving. He was saying the same thing. Right? The king is coming. Repent. Be ready. Because they were in Israel following the wrong kingdom. Uh, and so Jesus Christ had begun to show this kingdom, which was his kingdom. And as I said, even if an Israelite at the time, at the time that Jesus preached this, uh, I mean now an Israelite who had interpreted Old Testament prophecy properly, had not gone the way of the Pharisees that legalized everything, but had actually stuck with the scriptures and humbly studied them and knew what they meant, you still would have been shocked at the things that Jesus had said. Because in the Old Testament, you just have a shadow of what is to come. And now when the reality of it is here, you're like, wow, I didn't expect that. And that's the way they all would have been. The disciples were. They, you know, they, they were very shocked. They were shocked that he died. Their greatest shock came when he walked into the room. After three days after he died. And then he showed him in the scripture, right? We find this at the end of Luke. That he showed them the prophets, the Psalms, the law, the Torah. And he said, look, this is what was supposed to happen to the Christ. And they were all like, huh. They had, read, they had all read it. And Jesus taught him it for three years. And still, it was like the, this the gap between the reality of life, so-called. Right? We call this world the real world. This is it. This is the tangible real world. It, it turns out it's not. But the real world is the eternal one. And this, again, is why prayer is so important because it's so easy to lose sight of that. I do it all the time. Lose sight of what is real. All right, so stop following the wrong kingdom. Follow the only kingdom. Then the second thing he says, verse 19, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Peter and Andrew. So now it's, so follow the right kingdom, now follow me, which makes him the king. Now, we all know this, this is not news to us, but you know, in the Gospel of Matthew, which Matthew was written to Jews, his main audience is Jews, unbelieving Jews in the right early church age, that he's going to show Jesus as the king, as the Messiah, as the son of David. And, and uh, Matthew's going to quote the Old Testament more than any other of the gospel writers because he's writing to Jews. And so it's important for us to understand that. Because even as the Jews in the Old, uh, well, at the Jews at the time of the early church had to understand, which is the same thing that all of us have to understand, there's one king, there's one to follow. And we're not to take that lightly. See, it's when we take it lightly that the narrow road becomes a much wider road of our own making. And then we don't really follow it. Not the one we're supposed to be following. Playing games on this road that we've made. That includes some of the narrow road and a lot of our own road. And we're cheating ourselves. And, and believe me, and I know it's hard to do, but... It has to be done. Follow me, 
and I'll make you fishers of men. So he gives them a new vocation, and all of us have a new vocation. We have a ministry. There are a variety of gifts, a variety of ministries, and a variety of effects. 1 Corinthians 12, which were all given to us by one spirit. At the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you were given a spiritual gift, a ministry, whatever it is that you are to serve and to do, and the works that you are called to do were established before the foundation of the world. It's something, that, again, that we need to remember that the works that God has given us to do to serve him were made by God before we were even born. So they're predetermined for us. As we follow the Lord, we'll walk right into them. That's why you don't have to stress out really about your spiritual gift or your ministry. If you follow the Lord, you're going to do it. And then eventually you're going to find out that it's a gift that you have. Uh, Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. We don't become apostles, but we're given a ministry. And then the first human response to Jesus' ministry that Matthew gives us is full obedience. So these are the things that are mentioned right at the start. Repent, follow the one kingdom, follow me, and I'll give you a new life. Fishers of men, it's a new vocation, it's a new life. And then what is the response? And and since it's listed first in Matthew, obviously there were many people who heard Jesus who didn't have this response. But it says in verse 20, and they immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zeb. I like, and the chosen they call their, their dad Zeb. I think that's what, I mean, with that kind of name, absolutely. They get in, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And so this gets us to, which is also in Matthew's Gospel, but it's also in the Luke, Mark and Luke, that if you love Father more than me, you're not worthy of me. I mean, obviously these, these boys have been fishing with their father since they were probably able to walk. And Jesus says, follow me. Now, you, you have to leave that boat. You have to leave your dad. And you have to come follow me. And, and that's the calling. Now, in our age, you know, we're not apostles. So do you have to leave your parents? No. But if you, as Jesus made this clear for us, if we love them more than him, if we love anything more than him, then we're not really worthy of him. So, at, at the front here, the only correct response to the Lord's calling I don't mean for salvation now. We don't obey for salvation. That's lordship salvation teaching, which I completely reject. I hope you do too. The only correct response to the Lord's calling, which is after our salvation, our salvation is by faith, saved by faith. But now we know we're called as saved ones. We're called, we have an election, and the only true response to that, the only good response to that is complete obedience leaving whatever we think our calling is and following his. And hence, we get to obedience. <clears throat> so Jesus in the upper room, now fast forward in long time, well, three years roughly. He's in the upper room and he says, if you love me, you'll do what? Keep my commands. All right, it's complete obedience. 
So we saw last time in the epistle to the Colossians that all three of these are there. We, we find in all the epistles the supremacy of Christ. It's written again and again and again. But the, the one in Colossians 1, Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is just terrific. Uh, he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. So the supremacy of Christ. Secondly, the call to seek our new life and not the things of the earth was in in Colossians 3, keep seeking your life which is hid with Christ above and stop seeking the things of the earth. And so, and that's what Jesus, that mimics what Jesus taught here in don't stop following the wrong kingdom and follow the only kingdom. Your life is hid with Christ in the heavenly places. The only, uh, thirdly, the way of the believer is full obedience. Paul said, we've heard of your full obedience, your total love for one another, and on and on. He said, that's what we've been praying for in Colossians 1. And so it it turns out in all the epistles that these three things, the supremacy of Christ, the call to follow him and not the world, and uh, full obedience is the only way, are in all of them. And then directly after that, Uh, Matthew gives us the Sermon on the Mount. So in Matthew's Gospel, it would look like this came really early in Jesus' ministry, but it's likely years later, a year and a half, maybe even two years later. But Matthew doesn't care about that. Matthew's not sitting there going, well, I'd probably tell him everything that happened before this sermon happened. And Matthew doesn't care. He's going to leave all that aside because under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, Matthew has a plan. He shows us repentance, follow the kingdom, uh, follow him, follow the Lord, drop everything and be obedient, and here's what it means to be obedient, Sermon on the Mount. So if we have any false concepts of what it means to repent and believe in Christ as our Savior, follow him, and be completely obedient, after we read this, we continue reading in Matthew, and there's no illusion. Then this kind of blows your hair back. So the Sermon on the Mount is God's will for the ethics in man. It is the will of God for His kingdom, the kingdom of men. Uh, we would tend to think that it's something different from the Old Testament, but it's not. Because the same commands are there. Um, It's not different. It's just that uh, the true depth and meaning of the command is now made known. And we'll look at adultery uh, just as an example, which the Lord uses. The, The command not to commit adultery turns out to be a command to, in your heart, have complete and utter Loyalty and fidelity to another person who is your spouse. Complete loyalty. Do we fulfill it perfectly? We're to try, but we know none of us do. Um, But that's the law. Whose law? Well, it's not mine. And it's not Washington's. And it's God's. Same thing with everything else. And and this is where we see that as Paul's going to write in his epistle in Galatians, uh, no, sorry, he writes this in Romans, 
that love your neighbor sums up all the laws concerning other people. You you only have to think about it for a second and say, well, I like how I scratched my head when I did that. Like a monkey. (laughs) Think about that. Uh, when When you think about it for a minute, you say, well, of course. Agape love, which Paul uh, defines for us in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, kind, does not take into account a wrong suffered, is not arrogant, does not brag, does not boast, does not seek its own, bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things, it's eternal. Uh, well, yeah. To love one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, it all falls under that. Be gentle, be faithful, have self-control. It all falls under love. And what I find amazing to me, this is kind of like a side note, is that if I'm, if I'm thinking of the person, I say, well, I'm going to do this great life for you. You know what? You're just not inspiring enough. The best people I know are not inspiring enough for me. I'm too much of a sinner for that. <laughs> I... I you're not, and this is based on Scripture, you're not to be inspired by people. Jesus said, as you've done it to them, you did it to me. See, it's love of the Lord that gives you this. It's because this is your life, Lord. This is your will, Lord. This is the life you've given me. This is the life of the kingdom. This is eternal life. It's the only way to love them. And then you're always inspired by God, not by people. You see, if you're inspired by people, when they start to be uninspirational, then what the heck? Hell. I'll say it. What the hell? I'm not going to do stuff for you. You don't deserve it. Of course, they don't deserve it. Neither do you. It's the love of God, which is the first command, and then the love of neighbor, which stems from that. So, and the law revealed all of this, and no one attained to it. And so, uh, let's read it. Matthew five seventeen. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now when the the law is fulfilled for us by the blood of Christ, why is that? Is because through his sacrifice, we are imputed with righteousness, his righteousness. At the moment of salvation, we receive the righteousness of God. We're made righteous and then declared justified. We are completely justified before God. And so we're, there, uh, we never sin to the point or at any point do we, does any sin cause us to be unrighteous or unjustified in the eyes of God. And that's judicial. That's legal. We're completely justified. So, we say, well, when Christ died on the cross, then this was fulfilled. 
And that would be fine if we didn't find the same way of life that is found in the law in the New Testament as well. Uh, you see it all the time. And, uh, you know, there's, there's not like completely different in New Commandments concerning ethics, concerning how I treat you and how you treat me and how we worship God. The thing that is, and when I say worship God, I mean in our hearts, because the rituals, the cleansings, right, the washings that they had to do, the rituals that they had to do, the animal sacrifices that they had to do, circumcision, which they, you know, in the early church, they tried to push this on the Gentiles, <laughs> and poor guys, and they accepted it. Uh, <clears throat> and that, those are all gone. The ceremonial all pointed to the coming Messiah. And once the coming Messiah came, it's actually blasphemy to offer animals to God. Because the one true Lamb of God has died for the sins of the world. And God allows us to, God tells us this, not here in Matthew, but in subsequent passages throughout the scripture. Uh, but what isn't removed is the ethics, the morals. Uh, except in the Old Testament, these morals and these ethics could not have been fulfilled the way that they can now. And why can we now? Because we're indwelt by the Spirit, indwelt by God. We have the whole of Scripture. We're made brand new creatures in Christ. We're made for this. We're made to walk by the Spirit. And so we will see, and again, it's very important to see, how the law has been fulfilled for us, but we're still under the commands, commandments. <clears throat> Now, and, I, and I think, too, now when, I, when I think about this, that, for instance, like a, a denomination like Seventh-day Adventists, they completely adopt the Mosaic Law as their way of life, meaning also the food restrictions, which in Acts chapter 10, we were told that all this food that Peter wasn't supposed to eat came to him, and God said to him, eat it. Peter said, I'm never going to eat that. And God said, eat it. Peter had bacon and lobster and all this stuff for the first time. Delicious, right? So... Uh, Bacon-wrapped scallops, maybe that, that's like the worst, worst of the food laws. He gulped them down with a little aioli. Uh, so anyway, that's how I would have it. The, uh, so because there are denominations who have adopted this, and so I think part of the design of Satan doing that is for the rest of us to back, back, back away. In other words, I don't even want to be remotely sound like I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And we're not. But, like I say, adultery, not okay in the church age. Murder, still not okay. Uh, having idols before you. I'm just going through the Ten Commandments. And even the Sabbath, we don't keep a Sabbath day. Seventh-day Adventists do. But we don't keep a Sabbath day, but we're told that every day is a Sabbath day for us. That we are always at rest in Christ. Uh, so the impact of the truth of this statement, I think, is not known well enough. And that goes for me as well. What could only be a list of commandments in the Old Testament which signal death to the sinner. Right? If all you have is the law as your master, and that's it. Either you keep it or you don't. If you don't keep it, you get the consequences. And that's it. That's as high as it goes. It's you and the law. 
hopeless. Hopeless. Kill me now. There's no way I can do it. I, I, there's no way I can do it. I just can't do it. So that's why we would say we're not under the law, which Paul does say. Uh, and that now, the way of moral, ethical life, that is God, see, when God called the law holy, that's because the way of it is his way. Right? When God said, love your neighbor, love me, um, do good, uh, you were, how you're supposed to treat strangers, how you were supposed to treat your neighbors, um, how you were to uh, worship God and learn his word. And, and, you know, all of that is a, is a flowing forth of God's nature that would be imprinted upon his law for mankind. Why would he want man to be any different than what he is as, in, as the creator of man? But for us now, to, we're not under a list of commandments that signals death for us. And one of the main reasons for this is because we're forgiven of everything. So for us, it becomes a way of life for a justified sinner who is in Christ, who is forgiven of all sin. Well, the law has a different look to it. I'm actually above the law looking down on it rather than under it. And that's, you know, that's my glass ceiling, which is going to just send me to hell because I'm going to break it anyway. But Christ has kind of taken us. He's fulfilled it for us. And now we're in him. And, and perhaps this is a, an, a way to think of it, is that the Lord Jesus willfully obeyed the law when he was here on earth. He did everything that, the, that he was commanded to do. He's not a lawbreaker. He was sinless. But would you say that Jesus was under the authority of the law? Technically, he put himself under the authority of the law, but actually he's the creator of the law. He's the one who wrote it. Would God be under his own law? You know, there's, a, there's a metaphysical conundrum there. <laughs> because, you know, can God lie? Uh, no, but is that because there's a law above him who says, God, you better not lie or you're not God anymore? Well, that would make the law a higher God than God, right? If he's under it, then the law itself is the God. So we all better be worshiping that. But it's not that. God is the creator of the law, and God doesn't lie because that's his nature. God, doesn't, God loves because it's his nature. And what has God done for us? And that's why we have this life here that looks daunting and odd and unlike anything. God has entered us into union with Christ. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Therefore, he has fulfilled the law for us and now we're a part of him of which the morals and ethics of the law are his nature. And that's a much better way of looking at it. But confusion arises. And I know you can feel it. I've heard messages like this before, and I'm like, yeah, I think I got it, and, uh, oops, there it goes. I think I, think I grasp it, and then, uh, wait, you know, it, it takes a while because it seems antithetical in places. And one of the places that the antitheses disturb us is because in Christ, uh, we who are in Christ do not keep the ethical laws perfect, right? 
uh, the people in Israel didn't keep it perfect, but neither do we. Even though we're in Christ, we don't either. We add to that the fact that we're forgiven of all sin. Uh, We add to that that Christ fulfilled the whole of the law, that we're no longer under the law. And so we conclude with grace gives us the right of lawlessness. If we're forgiven of all things, we're not under the law, Christ fulfilled the law, then why would I be keeping the commands of the law? So, I'm lawless. But then we know that that doesn't sound right. right? We know instinctively that's wrong. It's wrong to be lawless. And so what we do is we allow lawlessness of a more respectable kind and call it grace. I've seen a lot of this. I've done a lot of this. And say all of that law keeping is legalism. Right? Look at the Pharisees and Sadducees, legalists. They kept the law. Did they keep the law? They did not. They violated tons of precepts of the law. They kept the rituals. They were really good at those. But did they love their neighbor? Were they kind? Were they giving? Were they sacrificial? No. All of that was under the law. Neighbor to neighbor, to love one another, tribe to tribe in Israel, in the land. They weren't like that. So what are we to do? Because that's a wrong conclusion. To use legalism as an excuse to live somewhat lawless. I'd like to call it a respectable lawlessness. We are to keep all of the law minus the rituals and the ceremonial things. The rituals and the ceremonial things all pointed to the coming of Christ. Now that Christ comes, we do not have to wash in a certain way. We don't have to eat certain foods. We don't have to sacrifice animals. We don't have, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. Uh, all of that and much more. Those things all spoke of him to come. We don't have the rituals. But, as Jesus said here, not one, until the law is fulfilled, not any of it is going away. <clears throat> so notice that the law is not abolished but fulfilled. The blood of Christ fulfills it for all believers. This is another thing we have to keep in mind. That for me, the law is fulfilled. And our position in Christ as a new creation allows us to accomplish what the precepts of the law were always meant to be. And that's what you read in the Sermon on the Mount. What the laws were always meant to be. And now we have that. The Old Testament couldn't have done it. They just didn't have the assets to do it. The most faithful believer in the Old Testament could only see a shadow of it and not, could not be that person. But now we can. So as Paul writes in Romans 13, 8 and 9, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. If there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And this does not mean, in context, owe them money. (laughs) That's uh, that's quite oversimplified. The context of this means owe in terms of be obligated to. I'm obligated to what? To love you. Does it? As, what, as Christ loves me. That's my obligation. That's a narrow road. 
So all that comes with that. How we are to treat people. Our expectations of people. Our demands on them. Or, and as Paul writes about the filling of the Spirit in Ephesians 5, we are to submit ourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. That's the filling of the Spirit or the manifestation of it. So we lay aside all the ceremonial commands, all of which pointed to the Messiah to come and are no longer necessary. Ceremonial washings, animal sacrifice, all the temple worship, uh, burning of incense, showbread, candles, the golden candlestick, holy of holies, all of that. We don't, it's all, that all is fulfilled in Christ, meaning it all spoke of him. So when he came, it was no longer needed. In fact, we are in the heavenly tabernacle. It, it's said in, uh, in the holy of holies of heaven that Christ built when he, when he got there, when he ascended on high, it's built without hands, as it says in Hebrews chapter 9. It says that we live there, and so the temple worship, circumcision, and so on. The commandments about food, gone. It says anything you can eat. I know there's some who still want to hold on to some food restrictions. I find that, um, I kind of chuckle at it, but, you know, everybody's particular. You know, if, if you choose not to eat a certain type of food or foods, cool, but don't think it's spiritual, because it's not. Uh, <clears throat> so the commandments concerning how one should treat each other and how we treat God is timeless. And that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. There are the ones that Jesus showed, these, sorry, these as he depicts them, Jesus does in this sermon, is the real depth of them. He didn't change them, he opened them. He, you know, threw the doors open. He showed us what they were always meant to be. And we can understand why they would all fall under the word love. And, you know, I'm... Um, that's not the one I'm talking. Which one am I meaning here? Not that. Oh, the one in Galatians. Never mind. <laughs> Forgive me while I talk to myself. I'm out of time anyway. Um, so, I didn't get as far as I wanted to. Uh, to just kind of wrap up what we have so far is that Matthew's Gospel is a piece of literature that's designed to present at the front of it in Jesus' ministry the fact of repentance to follow the one true kingdom, to follow Christ, and to now take on yourself His new vocation for you. What is your ministry? And then to do so with absolute obedience. To know that that obedience and the laws that govern it, which we're going to find, we find in the Sermon on the Mount, are not something completely different or in devoid of the Old Testament law. The ceremonies, yeah, gone. The washings, the rituals, gone. But the ethics and morals of the Old Testament, Jesus is going to show us what they are truly and always have meant to be. And then when we see them, our eyes get wide and we're like, you seriously want me to do this like every day? Like, how about I give you like a day here and I say, wow, that was a great spiritual day. I'll never do that again. And just kind of, you know, write it down in my diary or something. Huh? That was the day. Should have seen me then. You know, 
It, every day, yeah, this is a life, and it's, it's incredible. But when we think about it, if we do, that what God has given us is incredible. To be in, you're indwelled by God right now. You know, it's a good thing we don't feel it. It would be distracting in the least, at the least. But what we've been given is in absolute conformity to what we've been called to. And hence prayer. Now, if we don't keep in contact with God all the time and then get our eyes on the things of the earth, what we're told that's the wrong kingdom, then we're easily thrown off. Narrow road. Just walk right off of it. And, and it, for us, the, the problem with Christianity over the years is that we've taken the narrow road. It's happening now in a terrible way in the big churches around the country that are just like, you know what, just love Jesus and that's all you need to do. And what they've done is take the narrow road and made it as wide as they can and to keep it kind of looking like the road. But the road's like razor thin because there's one way. And we've got to keep in constant contact with our Father to maintain it. Uh, when we, perhaps we'll talk a bit about this, but when we get to the end of this sermon, what God tells us about as further motivation here is rewards in heaven. There's rewards in heaven for this. In time as well. But there's rewards in heaven. We're not given specifics about what they are. But they're there. And it's further motivation to do what we can do now uh, because in heaven these opportunities won't be. All right, now we can pray. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you, by your um, preserving of your word, that we can be able to see and read our Lord's words in that fateful morning when he taught this sermon and taught how to pray and that we can go over it slowly and try and glean as much as we can from it to open our eyes to the truth of it that we may be able, as you said through your servant Joshua, to make the choice between life and death. And so, Father, we thank you for your grace, your patience, your forgiveness. May we uh, forgive one another and, and be encouraging and helpful to one another. Consider others as more important than ourselves, as you say, and therefore to follow you. To know, Father, that the reward for this, even before heaven, is the seeing of this life in all that it is. And to have the joy that you promise is the very joy of Christ himself. We ask in Christ's name, amen.